You know what? I have a new velvet bathrobe, oh and maybe God, it's, it's time for nine. me to start to, to be in my bathrobe. I am all for that. You're the one who's worried about not being taken seriously, and you might be right. You might you might be right, but I'm all for it. I you just got to do is, it. The, the that, world is collapsed. Like, come on. Put the bathrobe on. Yeah, do that's it. out the window. I'm not worried about that anymore. Yeah, uh, okay, I, I, I didn't want to wear my other bathrobe. This is like this velvet bathrobe. This is also so a dressing gown, by the way, not a bathrobe. I mean, mine's a fucking dress. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a dressing gown. I don't know. No, but you've been using a term bathrobe. I just want to make sure that we're not that doesn't spill over. Fine, I'll me. use the higher end, the higher end name for the high end part of the show. This is a very classy show, and I, you know. Yeah, it's classy. People keep people have been coming on wearing jeans and stuff, and I've been actually saying something about it. I think that it's important. Yeah, like three piece tuxedo minimum. Show some respect for the puffin. <laughs> Oscars dressed up, would it kill ya? <laughs> Live from West Berlin, it's the committee program with the Runcharri, Julia Doubleday, Forrest Lovett, Fiamma Meli, Jevat Castrati, and yours truly, Jacopo Castelletti. We join the show already in progress. And now, Smart Club. Hi, and welcome back to Committee Program. I am your host, Arun Chaudhary. And as promised, we have a French election update. Where we're at right now is between we finished the presidentials. They had both rounds. Uh, we'll probably talk about that a bit. And now we have the, the legislatives coming up. Uh, and with us are two friends of the show, Nanon Lagarde and Pauline Rapoli-Ferneau. And they are going to tell us how we should feel about this legislative election and also how they feel about how this election went, and I'm just gonna spoiler alert, not good. Uh, I mean, set the stage for us. I'll ask you to know first. Uh, I mean, how did this all turn out? How did people feel? And especially from the turnout perspective, because we know that, that that's something that you were you know, fighting against abstentions in this election was your main thing. What was turnout? Who did turn out? And how did that affect you know, Macron's not as big as last time, but sort of whatever win? Well, Unfortunately, there is not a lot to say. There is no surprise. There, is, there was a high uh, rate of people that didn't go to vote, but not too high in order to 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 be a, a topic during the the weeks of the election. So yeah, some too many people didn't go to vote, but not enough to make it a real thing. And there is no news in how people turn out or not. It was the the usual. There is no uh, new. We could expect the young people to show up a bit more that it, that they did, but not that much. And the the election and the campaign was shitty, so of course people didn't show up to vote. And the the main thing that is important for us to remember is that we had a second turn with Macron and Le Pen, and that wasn't scary enough to people to show up to vote. And that's something that we need to learn for the next election. Basically. We should have had a, a, a higher turnout for the second turn, and that didn't happen at all. So that's something new for us, and that's mainly the only thing that is new regarding how people went to vote. There is not a lot to learn from this election, unfortunately. No, and sometimes there isn't. On this show, I think often we're saying, like, when we can't, we shouldn't pretend to learn all these things from every election necessarily. Um, one thing I do think from our perspective outside, it's hard for us to know, but I have heard from people, is that Marine Le Pen is not a talented politician. Like, she's sort of not good. Uh, how much do you think 
people are looking for what she is selling generally. You know, this is why you have other right candidates, you know, who's, who get enough percentage to sort of make a majority. Uh, how much is it her lack of talent and how much is it just, you know, fear of, of the actual fascist outcomes? You know, because I think we're fed in the West uh, and in North America this idea that she's another one of these sort of talented, uh, you know, fashy kind of Salvini, you know, kind of things. Well, I wouldn't say she, that she's not talented at all. She was, she did a great campaign. She's much better than a lot of the candidates on the left side. Mm. Something that we've learned is that when you are doing politics old school, it works. She did a completely boring campaign and it works quite well. She decided to go all over France to meet with people and to organize small meetings. People loved it and that's yeah. what... She was so so good. She wasn't that good in the in the second turn, but just before that, the world campaign, she was great. She was better than so many of our candidates. She didn't manage to 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 talk to to new people, and she benefited a lot from people who wanted to vote for Zemu but didn't because they thought that it was more useful to vote for her. So basically, she was one of the greatest candidates. Um, Macron didn't did uh, didn't do a great campaign, but she did. She she was amazing at the way she did campaign and and show us that you don't have to do a Mélenchon style meeting to to win a campaign, and you can do things. Right, it was more grassroots, right? More yeah. more person to person. Really. Uh, the only thing tactic again from the outside that we saw Macron do in the second round was all of a sudden speaking up loud and fast about environmental issues to sort of seemingly to get the reluctant youth. Pauline, I mean, you're the audience for this. What did you think? Uh, did you find it convincing? Um, and then uh, we'll, I would love to transition into talking about your candidacy now, but but okay. no, I mean, you were the audience for this, exactly you, right? This is who he wanted. Okay, well, I think no one has been uh, naive on Macron's promises. Like he said, oh, Ecology is important, blah blah blah. But everyone just like everyone just voted against yeah. Le Pen. And I would just want to go back on what you said about people perce like seeing Marine Le Pen as being uh, good or not good. I don't think she's bad. Like I think she's a good politician. And what's carried us is that in the how do you call the period between the two, like l'entre-deux-tours? How you call it in English? Uh, we call it the in the interim in the between interim? the two elections. Okay, well, during this period, uh, Macron was really, really the worst. Like, instead of saying, like, oh, I'm going to do, like, he just said, oh, people are going to vote for me or being against my project. And he should have just been, like, I don't know, trying to be a little bit more humble and say, oh, I understand, like, I didn't do as well as I could have done at this, this, this but please still vote for me and he stay like, oh, I'm the best and I'm going to win anyway. Um, and for Marine Le Pen, I think she improved a lot like for this election. And that's why we decided to just like kind of uh, interrupt a little bit the kind of uh, interrupt a little bit the way of her campaign by going to one of her press conferences. It's because we thought people were forgetting who she really was. Like with the campaign of Zemmour, like he was the one saying the most racist stuff, and so he was taking all the racist part of Normalizing the right. Yeah. And Marine Le Pen only had to just, yeah, do her own campaign and not talk about it. 
And at the end, people thought the most useful vote on the extreme right was Marine Le Pen. So she got everything, but she didn't have to talk about all the racist part of what she was bringing with her. And then on the second run, it felt like for a lot of people, it was, oh, she's, she's still extreme right. Is it that bad? Like, she is more or less normal. Like, she looked normal. So that's why we went to one of her press conference and then tried to raise, like, a picture of her with Vladimir Putin in a big heart just to tell people, hey, realize, like, remember, like, for Marine Le Pen president would be a strong link between France and Russia, even when Russia is attacking Ukraine. So that's why we did, and then they, like, put me on the floor and, like, dragged me all outside the press conference. And that was cool because, yeah, we'll like, it showed, like, right she is still actually. violent. And as, as soon as you, like, scratch the stuff, oh, okay, well, you can. It's funny. Like, I wanted yeah, yeah, to laugh yeah. about it, like, when I saw the image of me just being dragged on the floor. But I was so scared that she would win. I didn't want to make jokes about it. Like, I wanted to tell people, this is serious and this is a real danger. But no, she lost. It's fine. We can make all the jokes about me on the floor and, like, that's fine. But something I just wanted to say about her becoming better, before I interrupted the conference, we waited with all the journalists for one hour because we were okay with her having her press conference. So we let her speak for one hour of all her strategy on diplomatic stuff and everything. And she looked so much more competent than she used to be. Like, she seemed to... Like, of course, it's not the vision we have of diplomacy and all of this, but she seems like she knows what she wants to do and the way she wants to do. And she she gives the impression that she was ready to be the president. So I'm happy the only thing people realized about... Like, the only thing people remember about this conference is just that she has been violent with uh, me. So that's perfect. But she's not that stupid or like incompetent if you compare her to all the candidates we had yeah okay well i mean yes i mean that that's so that is that's a good correction then because i think there is a sort of strand in some international press who sort of like people she's a bad saleswoman to act for actually what french folks want uh, i do want to ask you uh pauline first what can you tell us about these upcoming legislative elections traditionally they sort of echo the uh, what has happened in the presidentials. It's sort of an odd system that's yeah. sort of right on the heels of the executive. You have mm -hmm. the legislative branch elections. Uh, how does it work and how does it traditionally kind of play out? Well, in the past, it used to be not at the same time. And what happened is that several times we had a president and then uh, the deputy was not from the same party. So there were something called cohabitation that made everything difficult. So they changed the system and said, no, the election is going to be right before the legislative. So we have a majority and the president elected can do what he's been elected to, what he's been elected uh -huh. to. And now there is a big hopes uh, for people from the left. Uh, and from everyone around Mélenchon, they're trying to get the same mobilization they had for presidential election, and they're trying to ha replicate it for the legislative election. And instead of having uh, each uh, circumscription, each, uh, I don't know, electoral stuff, uh, they decided yeah, to make yeah. it a national, uh, national election. And they're having a big campaign saying, we want Mélenchon first minister. And so they want to make everyone vote for the people of their party, no matter who the person is. We don't even know if they're going to put the picture of the person on the, on the communication. They're just going to say, vote for this person because it's going to make Mélenchon Premier Ministre. It can be smart from their point of view so that they bring as many people as they can to vote. 
but it makes it difficult also to negotiate with the other party because the idea was that, okay, all the left know we are going to go together and decide where we put which candidate to have as many left and green right. candidates as possible in the assembly. And it's now supposed to be like the alliance are supposed to be decided like today, tomorrow. It's just super stressful for everyone because we want it to work. And no matter what we think about each of our political party, we just want it to work for our future and for like ecology and for all this. But we don't know if it's going to work or not. I mean, it sort of echoes uh, the beginning of the presidential in which everyone was supposed to have these meetings, get together and kind of form a left coalition. So maybe, I don't know, I'm, obviously we're hopeful for it. But Ninone, as someone who was working in voter mobilization, uh, we were talking before and you were saying, even though it's possible for the next week for people to register, you don't expect many people to participate in this election who did not previously. Um, what do you think are the kind of tactics or methods that can be made to sort of unite people to vote tactically for the left? Or is it more of a free-for-all? Or just how do you see it? Well, the problem with this election is to figure out whether we have to lie to people in order for them to go to vote or not, and how much do we have to lie to them. Because in France, when you are a deputy of the opposition, you basically have no power, no rights, and you are kind of useful. You have the right to speak up and to be listened by the media, but if you are in the opposition and Macron has a majority of MPs that vote, that vote for him, he can do whatever he wants, just like he did for the past five, year, five years. So there is two ways we can mobilize people to go to vote. Whether we kind of lied to them and made them believe that a cohabitation is possible. Like for, for me, it's a lie because I'm sure we will not have a cohabitation. There is no way we will have enough uh, MP on the left Macron side, even, even, uh, even if we have um, a, a great deal with all the political party, which is quite great, but there is no way looking at the numbers that we can have a cohabitation. So, so two options. First one, lying to people and make them feel that the, the cohabitation is possible. And so they enter the election thinking that they can choose the next prime minister, whether it's Mélenchon or who else, I don't care. I would love him to, as a first minister. Or else we have to be a more, bit more nuanced and t saying to people, no, there will not be a cohabitation, but still it's important to have uh, MP on the opposition, on the left and the green side, because... and. The list is quite short why we need to have those MP. I would love to have Pauline as an MP. Uh, it would be marvelous if she was on, on the majority, but she's on the opposition. She's someone I can ask for favor to, to, to talk about some issue in the media, to, to help some people to, to do things, but she will not be able to, provide, to, to, to prevent a bad law from Macron. So it's super hard to say to people to go to vote for this, for this election. What we're currently doing is just making sure there is a campaign. We are targeting 20 local districts in France where the abstention rate was super high and we are organizing debates mm. uh, adapted to young people to make sure that they wow. are aware of who are their candidates in their uh, local district to make sure that they are given a better interest in the election and that everything is not at the national level. But we will, we do not expect to have a huge impact on the voter turnout for this election because Mainly for now, like Pauline said, it depends on the agreement that we have uh, among the left party. But 
no matter what, our president will be for the next five years, Emmanuel Macron. And this is something that we can't do anything about for now. And that, and it's not raising a lot of hope for sure. I'm, Am I clear to, uh, uh, on the two? Yeah. I'm not super cheerful and hopeful, uh, but I'm trying yeah. as I do my job to try to bring people back to politics, not to lie to them and not to always tell them that we can win where it's obvious that we can't. But there is still things why we should yeah. show up for. But lying to people has been what we've did for the past 20 years and it hasn't helped people to trust politicians in a better way. So I don't want to do that anymore. I actually really appreciate you saying it exactly in that way, because the sort of breach of trust, especially sometimes from the center left to the civic left uh, and to folks, you know, who are more issue oriented or activists has been almost made an irreparable block between people. I will say, and I will have more to say about this on the show and to you both, I'm sure, uh, at different times. But coming off that election in Slovenia, we had some kind of hard, some kind of tough truth ads, you know? And I do think maybe uh, one of the tactics of getting people to vote in this election could be similar, which is that you do these things not for some reward, not for a tangible change in your life. Sometimes you do these things because they're the right thing to do. And it's your turn to stand up and just, you know, would it kill you to vote the right way this afternoon? It won't even, it won't even cost you anything. Like, just do the right thing. Uh, sold for its own sake, right? There's no candy. There's no pot of gold. Like, this is what you see on the box is all you get. Uh, Pauline, like, what are you doing to reach out to Melishon voters in your district? We know you are running for the assembly. It's exciting. Uh, you are getting that huge committee program bump right now. All of our viewers in your district are going to, for sure, <laughs> volunteer, etc. But, you know, yes. but what are you doing to, to kind of be a, unify, a candidate who is unifying the left as you're running? So for now, we, we're kind of, you know, like in a weird period because like the National Party are negotiating the alliance or no. So I decided to start campaigning like just because we can't just stay there doing nothing. Yeah, that's right. Um, so what I've done is that I wrote uh, I wrote an email to all the people, like to all the local committee of the Mélenchon party to say, hey, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm in this bar uh, every week if you want to come meet. And I had some of them on the phone. So they know I'm running and I they know... I want them with me, and they also know if they end up being the candidate, I'll support them. So we try to have locally good relation. Um, and what I start doing is that we go. Do you say in English door to door, or do you just say canvassing? Door to door. Uh, in Texas, what is the right word you use? In Texas, in Texas, we call it block walking. Yeah. Uh, but you know, everywhere else, it's you know, door to door. You know, okay. canvas. Yeah. Okay, door to door. So. So since last week, we started doing door-to-door -door every evening, like uh, around 7 p.m. when people come back from work. So we just go door-to-door -door in the district where people vote for us, the Green, and where people vote for Mélenchon. And we just go door-to-door -door and say, hey, I'm your candidate, or there is our candidate uh, in the next block or in the next uh, um, place. Uh, and would you want to join us and to campaign with us? And it works quite well. Like most people are happy to see their candidate knocking at their door and saying hi to them uh, which is cool with like what is cool with me is that people saw me on the Marine Le Pen stuff so it's very easy to say oh you've seen her on the TV being dragged with by Marine Le Pen's uh, security guard so it helps because people feel like oh okay so I know you so it's you oh okay so they feel like they <laughs> meet someone who is famous and it helps 
It's true. We know that name ID is the single most important thing in getting out the vote. And actually, many candidates sometimes are out there trying to make a case when they should just be running ads that have their name in their face. So people are like, oh, that's a person. Because like that's the first step <laughs> towards getting a vote is literally yeah. making yourself be a person to someone. Uh, uh, how, how, how are you feeling about your campaign? What should we expect from uh, the folks in your district? How you doing? It really depends. Uh, it really depends. Like it's going super well. Like there is like um, people are all happy. Like oh okay, you're the green. Oh we like you. Like there is a very like positive idea about the greens uh, in my district. So that's cool. And there is a lot of um, motivation. Like people want. Like the activist wants to go out and like go to door to door like give flyers and stuff. It depends a lot on if there are going to be another candidate for Mélenchon. Like if there is one, it's going to be hard. But if they go with us, we can try hard, but we can try to be on the second, on the second run. Like we mm -hmm. can pass the first be in the runoff, thing and yeah. be on the second run. But I don't think there is... Yeah, but this is possible. Like if we put all the left together, this is possible. And on the right, because it's such a right-wing district, on the right there would be at least three candidates on the normal right, plus one or two on the extreme right. So this is possible if I'm the only one on the left and on the only green stuff. It's always cool to campaign. Like It's been three years now since I got elected at the uh, municipal council. Mm -hmm. So people start to know me and like, it's not like they feel like I'm just coming out of nowhere just because it's the election. Like they've seen me all the time for the past three years. Uh, they saw video of me uh, doing stuff like they know me and most of them know, just know my face or just know my name. Or they just know there is a young green girl in the municipal council who is annoying the mayor and at least they know I exist and I'm doing stuff. So it helps. And it makes it easy for people to just decide to join, which is cool. I, I actually love doing this, like doing campaign locally, where you mm -hmm. just decide together what you're going to do, and then you do it together, and then you see it, like you receive mes messages from people saying, hey, is it every Thursday you do your stuff at the bar? Can I come next Friday or next Thursday? I'm like, yes, and that's cool. I, I love doing this. And if we don't win, because we're, I'm not going to be deputy in June, except if there is a miracle, but I'm not, but... It doesn't change anything because on the way, or well, it changed a lot. But what I'm saying is like, when you do a campaign together, all what you've done is not lost because you haven't won the election. Like, it's still something you build for the yeah. future. It's still people who are going to feel like they have an attachment with the green. It's still the cities that's going to feel like, oh, but we have a green candidate. We're there. We know her. And we still build something. And on the long term, it matters. That's why I don't want to let the Mélenchon candidate be the only one because they're not from the cities they're not going to stay they're going to disappear the day after the election and i don't want to miss this opportunity to build more about what matters for us like to make a bigger like we want to be a counter power locally uh, for all that matters for us like the everything about ecology but also social justice and stuff like this so this is a lot of things we're going to build, even if we don't win the election. Nanon, last question goes to you. And I will say kind of this feels like such half-baked convention, not over-baked, not half-baked, over-baked conventional wisdom uh, that is dripping out into the kind of pan-European and North American press about elections. Is there like, guess what? It looks like the traditional parties in France have lost power, right? This has obviously been a story of, you know, for a long time of them losing power. To me, the more interesting thing is that it seems that the next tier down of parties, whether it be, you know, the ecologists or Mélenchon or either 
you know, either this tightly bound thing or this amorphous personality based thing. Uh, they're like, do you, I mean, how do you see the future of the kind of constellation of parties that we see? It like, you know, how stable is that situation in your view? Well, looking at the, the presidential election, there is not uh, two blocks, but three blocks right now in the in the French politics. Three blocks, uh, three political parties. So the real liberals with Mélenchon, uh, with uh, with uh, Macron, the far right, which is a, a really sturdy block that we've seen on the on the second turn, everybody turned to Marine Le Pen, and uh, the progressive and. Everything depends on the alliance that they are going to build for the legislative election or not. Because it, it has a huge impact on the finance of the political party and everything will be uh, driven from that. And we, I think that for the next five years, we will be looking a lot more at the political party than looking at the... Um, civic uh, organization and the civil society because we've tried so much for the past five years as civil as NGOs and civil organization trying to make uh, Macron change his, his way of saying things. It mm -hmm. didn't work. Like, I mean, we walked with petition, we organized video with every, every YouTuber you can imagine, we've disobeyed, we, we've did everything. And now uh, we, well, we, uh, I feel that we don't want to to continue to do that and a lot of people have more um, faith in, than, in politics than ever because we think that's the only place that we can have an impact for the next five years. So everything will, there is really high, high hope on the uh, capacity of the left party to merge into one sturdy thing in a nice way for the legislative election. and. Um, the engagement of young people in politics will depend a lot on that and I think they have a huge responsibility and we are looking at them every second of every hour on Twitter for the past two two weeks and hopefully they won't disappoint us. They already disappointed us a lot for the presidential election, not being able to merge into one political party. That was a great mistake of them. And if, the, this, if they disappoint us again or for the, the legislative election, this will have a strong marks on the way people see politics, because people do remember that. In French, people don't vote for two reasons. They really do remember uh, the Treaty of Europe. They had a referendum. They said, we don't want that. And after that, politicians did that, even though they, the French people said no. They really strongly remember that. And if we give them excuse not to go to vote for the next 10, 15 years, uh, that is people that don't uh, that have the same opinion are not able to merge into one political party or one candidate how why should i i, I move on, on sunday to vote for anyone i mean they are not even pretending to care about our life so there is a really high hope and really high responsibility for the next five years now I mean, at least there's that hope. I would say in the U.S., it's kind of that ship has sailed and we're about to see two, like, really, really shitty elections uh, uh, this year and then two years from now. But, inshallah, things will not break down quite like that. And, Pauline, we are all in your corner. Thank you both uh, for coming on and keeping us up to date. And just appreciate you all. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. <laughs> Thank you. Merci. Oh.
manger la viande et j'ai pas mes macanis. Oh, ça, c'est Rudy. Il a encore oublié ses pâtes macanis pour accompagner sa viande. Eh ben, les voilà, tes pâtes macanis. C'est instantané et c'est très bon. Demain, je fais le Mont Blanc. Désolé, je peux pas venir, j'ai mon cours de danse. Macani, le fidèle compagnon de la viande. Je vous écris d'un coin de ciel bleu. Sur la mer, je file 20 nœuds. Vers les îles dont j'ai toujours rêvé. Je vous écris pour vous rappeler que le bonheur, ça n'arrive pas qu'aux autres. Gagner au loto, ça n'arrive pas qu'aux autres. J'ai seulement cru. Chocolat riche, honteux, généreux, Suchard a su tirer tous les plaisirs. Un cœur de praliné fondant et moelleux, nappé de chocolat fin, parsemé de noisettes croustillantes pour donner naissance au rocher Suchard. Rocher Suchard, tous les plaisirs du chocolat. And three, two. Oh, I actually tried to do, like, the character thing on its introductory call to this new person to come in, and it, like, did not work, where I was like, hey, you know, it's really light, nice to meet you. These two people have told me nothing but, you know, that pause was, like, bad things about you. They really can't stand you. Uh, and it just did not land. Did that's not, not even, uh, that's not mean or rude. That's, like, a dad no, joke. No, it wasn't even. It's it like was, a dad joke. Yeah, Everybody says that. I, I did it, like, in a kind of, like, even in a hammier way than a dad, kind of like a, a big setup thing. Well, I feel like maybe you hit on the truth then. Maybe those people don't like that person. That's true, but that's true with everybody. And three. Maybe you. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Put that in the show. Oh my god, okay. Sorry. And now, highbrow, lowbrow. Hi, welcome back to the committee program. And this is the sophomore edition of Highbrow Lowbrow, a segment where Julia Doubleday and I examine a peak of high culture and a valley of popular culture. See the way that I said that? Like, popular. you know what I mean? Like a, yeah, popular. Just like I had a bad mouthfeel mouth, yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, and we jam about it. We talk about it. We do, mm. we do what's what. We make it happen. On the show last time, we said we were going to do horror this time, and we did. Horror. 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 Sound like you're saying horror. 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 <laughs> uh, and I think we should maybe start with, with the lowbrow, uh, like to reverse what we did last time, but let me just say what both of the films are. Yes. The first film is 2002's The Ring. Uh, many of you will be old enough to have seen it, and uh, it is... A, a ripping good yarn film. There's a, you know, the, Thank I, you. we're not going to get into it too much. Okay. We're not, I, mean, I just want to quickly plot so people remember. Finally, this is the one he likes the, the lowbrow. The TV, it's a videotape, you know, that makes bad things happen, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we're pairing that like a fine wine with a meal uh, from David Cronenberg with his 1982. So it's nice. It's exactly uh, 20 years. Um, 
with his work uh, Videodrome, which was his first kind of like major label <laughs> album in a way. Have you heard about this videotape that kills you when you watch it? You start to play it, and it's like somebody's nightmare. And as soon as it's over, your phone rings. And what they say is, you will die in seven days. Katie told you she was going to die. She told me. She said she didn't have enough time. Would you say that I'm gullible? No. Easily rattled? A little highly strung, maybe. I watched the tape. Seven days. I'm not gonna get all worked up over some rumor. Yeah, show it to me. Miss Keller, I'm bothered by these drawings. Why did you draw that house? She told me to. Who? Who told you to? She tells me things. Before you die, you see the ring. The images on the tape are leading us somewhere. Did she show you the horses? Don't you understand, Rachel? Tell me, Liz. What is it you think you know? Hello? Before you die, you see the ring. I had never seen Videodrome and you had never seen The Ring. So we just. That's we, right. We picked this. I don't know. I mean, it was just some sort of psychic connection that got and us And the films, to both, together. right? Yeah, Videodrome, yeah. again, deals with uh, videotapes doing things to people. Uh, and videotapes so what's so cool is that this is both about videotapes doing, doing things to people, but in many ways, it's totally opposite like in the intentions and the results. And I think that's going to be cool to talk about. But what what made you recommend The Ring to me? And then I will say my reaction to it, which was, I, I, I you will know as I was watching it, was very positive. Well, first of all, The Ring is one of my favorite horror movies ever. I'm a big horror person. As you know, I watch horror movies like kind of every day to calm myself down. It really takes me out of the... Uh, existential dread of existing in the world. I don't know this why. This is an important part of your just daily ritual. E exactly, yeah. yeah. So, but The Ring, I think I saw, it's one of the first horror movies I ever saw, actually, because I was, I don't know, like 15 when it came out Jesus or something. Jesus Christ, how old are you? Yeah, I guess that's right, all right. Yeah, okay, I mean, yeah. and I didn't, my parents didn't let me watch horror movies when I was a kid, so maybe, I don't know, this is part of my teenage rebellion as well. Um, but yeah, so it's, and it, I like one of the first scary ones. I mean, I saw the gremlins when I was a kid, but that's, I mean, it gave me nightmares for 10 years, but it's not actually that scary. Um, the ring is, I just think it's like a really perfect little film. Like the way the, the narrative from beginning to yeah, end. It's a little machine that works. Exactly. Isn't it? It, it's like the pacing, the narrative, 
where it the takes exposition. you. The exposition. I knew what was going on very quickly without having to yes, learn a bunch like, of weird shit. Thank you, Marvel Universe. <laughs> like, I don't need to, like, buy things. Right, to, like, so understand. we knew what was happening at the beginning. That first opening yeah. scene is very, very memorable. Again, it's that sort yeah. of decision to front load the shock um, and then sort of build back up to that as you're sort of unpacking along with the journalist what's happening along the way. You have the heightened stakes of, like, her son watches the film. There's the um, relationship with her ex that sort of... It's sort of a romantic <laughs> subplot, but, like... They, they, you know what? It feels like it doesn't pay off, but then we care about them enough that it matters, so that's good. Yeah, you no, know, I like, think they did a good yeah, job with yeah, that. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah, a little yeah. bit, like... You know, that's, that's the twist at the end, right? Is that, like, they think they have... Um, solves the problem. That's all solved. And you're even sort of, you're even sort of satisfied. You're like, oh, that was pretty good. But right. then it does that kind of... That right. And I actually, like, gotcha. I think yeah. it's very satisfying that they do the twist because, specifically because... We can say what the twist is. This is decades Right, old. right, this, right. You know what I mean? And, yeah. Right. So... Yes, we we think that the ghost in the machine, who we think is probably good and trying to like express herself, is actually bad and wants to hurt. It's people. a little girl who, essentially, Rachel, the main character, is um, uncovering in the archives of the library, which, as we all know, is the best place to uncover things in horror movies. Always go to the archives of the library. Microfiche. Microfiche, Microfiche. is the way to go. Mm. So she's you know flipping. I have more to say on this in a second. These old newspapers, yeah. and she's discovering stuff about this weird town. She goes and finds this woman. Eventually, she solves this sort of mystery of this missing girl, which is that she was thrown in a well by her mother. So the the result or the, the conclusion that they reach is like, oh, this girl's spirit is haunting us because of this horrific death she was sent to. But ultimately, if you look at all of the clues along the way... Um, it doesn't actually add up. So if they had ended it, if they had ended it there, it would have been pretty unsatisfying because there's all this stuff about, you know, all the horses mysteriously dying and all of these supernatural things happening in the town and the supernatural um, images she's able to create out of her mind. The fact she never sleeps, all of these things aren't really explicable. Some of them could be like small town rumors, but, but, you know, being on camera, not sleeping for 20 out 24 hours a day. It's not really, it's supernatural, right? So yeah. they free the spirit of the little girl and immediately um, Rachel's son is like, oh, you should not have done that. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, not, yeah. No, you're, no, no. you're dumb. Like she's actually a maniacal killer and that's why they threw her in the well in the first place. Um, and then also very satisfying because it's literally an adult sort of being like, no, it's going to be okay. The adults did it, you know, and the kids just like, no, the adults don't really know what's going on, yes. which of course has many parallels. Yes. And also visiting them in their dreams and all this stuff and, you know, leaving marks on them. And, um, so she's, a, she's also a very terrifying villain right i mean even to the point where i think that she's a very like um cultural touch point people know the girl that crawls out of the tv people know the girl with the you know hair in her yeah, face yeah, even if they yeah, haven't yeah, seen yeah, the yeah. ring that's something that like people are very familiar yeah there's a image. combination of poltergeist and the shining and these images like we've seen we know these images yeah uh, and actually that's one of the things that that, that, that i thought was so cool about touch because it, it, it actually touched on something that you talked about last time which is sort of updating our uh cultural vernacular for the digital age or whatever. And mm. this film doesn't have to do that because it's 2002 and it is not part right. of the same world we are in now. It, but, but it is part of this really cool uh, line of, of kind of this cultural through line where technology 
actually confirms our belief in the spiritual rather than reverse, right? How the age of sort of exploration and science kind of led to uh, kind of Madame Blavatsky, right? And kind of that spiritualism and stuff, right? It's like the instant that we have cameras, one of the first things that we think to do with them is maybe we can photograph ghosts. You know, it's like, it's like actually what people want to do with the technology. And so it's sort of interesting that even here with like the videotape and stuff, it's like the visceral realness of this technology, we do associate with the supernatural to interact with it in a real way. Like it, these things to us, I think, go together rather than are separate. Technology always well, so maybe, tells us about the Maybe ghost. in a way it's, you know, humanity as a whole. We keep advancing technologically. And as we do that, we have this sort of uh, sublimated hope or maybe not sublimated if you're super into that kind of thing, um, that we're going to find something that we can't explain or we're going to find something that um, proves that there is something beyond what we can see um and you know like videos of bigfoot or whatever right you know like the the human mind we want to discover and at the same time we want to be stymied and confused and we want to feel it's a bit like of confirmation because we bias, want to feel right? like We're there's someone that's smarter than us that is is dictating what's going to happen because if it's just us that's very terrifying that's more terrifying than anything <laughs> Yeah, being surrounded by the dead is quite comforting in a way, right? Actually being alone. Well, because it wouldn't just be the dead, right? It would be a whole realm of existence that we can't touch or understand. Yeah, but even the parts that seem scary is better than nothing, though, right? Like I agree. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I, I really love the movie. I love the way it's paced. I love the way that they end up back at the cabin. Um, the whole thing of actually the the um, covering on the well going over being the ring, I really liked. Um, like, that's the last thing she saw. And I like that they kill the husband at the end. And I nice. really like that the reason the yeah. she survives, because we have to have an explanation for how she has survived. It's been more than seven days for her. So that's how she really thinks they're off the hook. This is like, you know, day yeah. five after you have COVID, you know, you can go back to work. Um, I'm going to keep, you know, disinformation. I just want disinformation to get out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, You know, it's been seven days, so she doesn't have the ring curse anymore. And uh, as it turns out, it was this incidental thing. It had nothing to do with the entire mystery. They're unraveling through the the entire movie. It's that she made a copy of the tape, which I think actually uh, segues nicely into Videodrome, right? Because, again, we're talking about this sort of viral nature of art of communication of uh potentially mm-hmm. malicious art um that can that can kill you um these things are are very parallel in some ways to what happens in videodrome um but yeah so she's made a copy of the tape she then forces her son to make a copy of the tape and you know in an era before going viral uh is an expression this is essentially what samara the you know scary hair girl wants to happen she wants her, her uh, she wants to infect the entire world in a sort of evil videotape pyramid scheme, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, don't we all in our own ways? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, YouTube killed the uh, video ghost. Uh, the thing that I also think is interesting, especially vis-a-vis you saying this is actually one of the first horror movies you sort of encountered even on, on your own, 
is that this is, uh, and this is going to involve me being at a party with cool people. So buckle up for anecdotes. Name dropping. Uh, but name dropping yeah, alert. Yeah, yeah. Can we get like a little yeah, banner? Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I just have to. I had to make sure that you know you get. You're the one. He really, I know it bothers you the most of all of all the folks in the show. <laughs> that's so I had to. So, that's so but uh, it was probably 2003, 2004. And uh, I met John Waters, who's a lovely individual and an extremely talented Good filmmaker. Good for you, Orion. Good job. And he was saying, <laughs> and he's one of the, there's two kinds of filmmakers in the world, right? The ones who want to talk about movies, the ones who don't want to talk about movies. He actually wants to talk about movies. Word. And he was saying, uh, and he was like, you know what's exciting now, uh, especially about September 11th, uh, and I'm sure he did not mean September 11th. Stuff was exciting, although it came it's out a little weird. Out of context. I remember, I remember <laughs> even there. I remember even then being like, let's be careful with that a little. Uh, is that horror movies are scary now again because we're scared now again. And kind of made this point about how in the 90s, horror was so thoroughly mixed with irony and more and more irony and more and more and more irony. And that these kind of films that were coming out, and he did talk about The Ring, although I hadn't seen it. And he did mention uh, The Hills Have Eyes, I think. Is that, one? Is yeah, that from the same era? Yeah, I haven't era? seen that one. Uh, yeah. And he mentioned both of those as being kind of, that felt more like 80s uh, or previous mm. 70s horror because it actually okay. was scary and allowed you to sort of not, you were allowed to just escape into the well, horror without being knowing about it. I feel like I it. specifically talked about this before because I was talking about how, um, I actually was talking specifically about sci-fi and like pre and post 9-11, um, about how like mm. in the 90s, end of history, right? So for a certain group of privileged Americans, it's this feeling like things are only getting better. They only can get better. Growth, growth, growth. Bye, bye, bye. Uh, and the art was really reflective of that. In a lot of ways, it was very shallow. Independence Day, I think, is a fantastic movie. It's um, very, very 1996. It was a great trailer. We were talking about trailers before. That's one of the great trailers of all time. We should watch that for the show, too. But anyway, it's. I mean, it's really just like the best disaster. I haven't disaster. seen it. Oh my God! What? I like the trailer. I'm not a big Will Smith guy, and it seemed kind of dumb. We're gonna you know? watch it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so next one should be apocalypse. Is the next theme should be apocalypse? Maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. So this is like a, like, just it's. A, it, I think it's aliens. also a perfect movie. I mean, it's just the perfect big disaster movie. Jeff Goldblum is very funny in it. Will Smith is funny in it. But it's, they have like one-liners and stuff, got, right? Like they, they have one-liners, one -liners, but they're, you know, they're not Avengers the one-liners. Like they're, you know, they're cute. I like it's not them. That we like it, okay. yeah. So, okay. and they're doled out, you know, here and there. But so... Right. I have to be a sincere film in a, that really came out cast, of Really great cast. But the, the whole mood of it is jubilant. It's a movie about the end of the world, but it's a very jubilant movie. Like, the end of it is like, the good guys won, and it was America, and we did it. And this is just what the world is, you know? Like, bad things happen, but then good things happen. Um, and then I talked about that in contrast to The Matrix, which came out a few years later, but also before 9-11. And The Matrix, I think, is really interesting because that's a very dark movie. It was very much in contrast to most of the things that were being made in the 90s. Uh, the mood of it, even that like very dark wash mood that really didn't become uh, as widespread until later in the 2000s. Um, and it's all about living in a candy-coated reality that isn't actually real because uh, there's so much happening below the surface. You know, some people have connected it to mm -hmm. um, trans, uh, the trans experience as both of the directors have come out as trans women. Yeah. I think there's a lot 
of other um, elements of sort of like I think that's cultural, just one lens of exactly at it cultural I think, we, social, I think we take something away from their actual agree you know, yes yeah. political revolution of saying like look you know you may feel like you're living at the end of history but you know take this pill and see that supporting all of this it's just suffering 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 that's a very to me a very like sort of blatant anti-capitalist message um and it was released onto this audience of people that were not i don't think they necessarily understood that underlying message there was definitely a lot of talk about like um technology robots the future all of these things but the dystopia uh is now <laughs> the dystopia is now let me write a book called yeah. that. Um, no, people miss it. When you're writing your book on that, you have to have a, a chapter about Starship Troopers, too, where you're like, it's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, yes, they're very fashy. That's the joke. Um, uh, okay, let's, let's, let's move over into uh, Videodrome. Uh, roll the trailer. Why did you watch it, Max? Business reasons. Sure. What about the other reasons? Max Wren is a victim. I woke up with a headache. He What's has that? been exposed to Videodrome. I've been hallucinating for a while, ever since... What? Since I first saw Videodrome. His brain is already receiving video images. I think that massive doses of... Videodrome signal will ultimately produce and control hallucination to the point that it will change human reality. Soon, his visions will coalesce and become uncontrollable flesh. Videodrome is seducing Max Wren. Please, come to me now. And Max Wren can do nothing to stop it. What makes you think I need help? None of our test subjects has returned to normality. Television can change your mind. Videodrome will change your body. Long live the new flesh. It will shatter your reality. Videodrome, starring Deborah Harry and James Woods. A shocking new vision from the creator of Scanners. Coming soon to a theater near you from Universal Pictures. So Videodrome is called body horror. I mean, I, I think immediately you told me, hey, this feels like sci-fi, not horror. Like his stuff is always about anxiety, about body, right? Mm -hmm. Like my hands disappearing inside me and yep. stuff. And actually, yeah. I find that sort of compelling because I've always kind of been scared by that, had sort of, you know, waking nightmares about stuff like that, like don't like that kind of thing. Um, but no, it is, it is a crossover in some ways into science fiction. But I think some of that is something that we do to it because, unlike The Ring, it is inherently political, religious, philosophical, and it sort of talks about that, right? Like, even in the movie, one of the lines is, this became a political project, and that's when it became dangerous. Right. Um, okay, so my first reaction to watching this movie was that I hated it. Then I thought about it more, and I didn't hate that's it. That's Debbie Harry, by the way. Uh, I know, I know. Blondie. I looked it up, yeah, I looked yeah, it up, yeah, actually, because yeah. I wanted to check. But, um, but yeah, I... 
was bewildered by it. I do think, oh, sorry, unpopular. Um, I do think that a lot of cultural context was probably missing for me because this isn't something I saw in the 80s and I also wasn't like a baked human in the 80s, like I got born in the 80s. Um, I feel like it was probably, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not the highbrow expert, uh, very much a product of this sort of uh, moral panic around TV, which I think was really big in the 80s. Like, I'm... I would say, yes. A bit of this... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Finish, finish, finish. Uh, yeah, so I was just going to say, in that way, I would say it's it's different from The Ring because I'm not sure how much The Ring was trying to specifically, um, you know, either... Uh, have that conversation about media and how it, it affects people. Maybe they were, but it's much more explicitly done, at least in this context, where it seems like he's both sort of skewering, skewering from both sides in a way, because it seems like, in, and on the one hand, he's sort of skewering this idea that, like, you know, if you watch violence on TV, you're going to become a murderer. You know, you're going to get a, it's a, it's a sort of heightened uh, reality where you get a brain tumor and then you actually, you know, your hand turns into a gun and all this stuff. And at the same time, he does seem yeah, to yeah. be skewering a sort of direction of culture in the way that he talks about, um, you know, so the, the Videodrome, the TV show they want to air is essentially saying, well, the next thing that humanity is going to want to watch is just people getting tortured, raped, and murdered. There's no plot. There's no characters. It's just watching people get tortured, raped, and murdered. So right, that's the point, right? right yeah, so yeah. I, I mean, to me, I'd just be interested to know, you know, how you sort of reconcile these things and what is. What is he trying to say about where the culture is going? Is he sort of mocking both this idea that we are products of what we consume? Or is he sort of partially um, behind that idea, but maybe just in a less like hysterical way? Is he uh -oh. um, upset about where culture is going? Or is he making a joke about where culture is going? Like, I think there were there was a lot of context that maybe I missed because I... I I'm not totally sure. I don't think you missed anything. I think I think you I think you put your finger right on it. And yeah, and he's you know is trying to have his cake and eat it too by not coming down anywhere. And the kind of horrorness of it helps because everybody can just sort of die, you know. <laughs> yeah. and we don't have to you don't have yeah. to worry about it. But yeah, I think it is a bit of this moral panic. But it's not just sort of like the sex and torture stuff. I think it's also this is the same time as you're seeing yes the rise of like Playboy TV and HBO having a kind of like you know up all night kind of like you know it wasn't a high prestige thing then it was more kind of schlocky. But at the same time you had Morton Downey Jr. and those guys you know, the, the pre Rush Limbaugh's kind of coming on TV mm. with the idea that you just yell at people and that was good TV. This was sort of new and exciting. Uh, and so the idea that TV was just sex and yelling and horror like really was coming down on it and then you also have the other people who he's enjoying lampooning here who maybe is the last wave which are the theorists mm, right mm -hmm. so uh so the guy who sort of runs the religion yeah. uh the tv religion is definitely supposed to be marshall McLuhan, uh who is you know he uh cronenberg's canadian marshall McLuhan's canadian uh, the whole thing takes place in toronto etc so it's i think it's also kind of the it's also making fun of the fact that he would make a movie analog these things right it's like even the analysis of this is also yeah. is also a bit much but i do think at the end of the day he does want to say that while real experiences 
real experiences, and maybe this is profound, are no more or no less important than imagined experiences. And not to say that they aren't as important or that they are more important, but that, ex but that the two things are exactly the same. Yeah, or that the two things are now sort of melding together to form a new type of person that is so heavily molded by culture uh, and this sort of national, international culture, which is maybe something that was new at that time. I mean, now, now we communicate more than ever through a, a lot of different platforms. I wonder how you would make that movie today. Yeah, it would be a lot different, right? And I think it would also, as you're exactly as you're saying, have more this idea of kind of global web pushing into one thing, right? The homogenous kind of new now, but with diametrical and different, uh, different forces still fighting for us, right? Sort of the end of history is not a matrix of one perfect thing. Right. It's just a, a new battlefield in which the same exact things happen. You know, and sort of the silliness of a, a religion based on people watching TV to cure themselves of all ills is probably the same thing as Jesus, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, I did like the one-off. At some point they said the evil corporation or whatever that's trying to kill everybody who wants to watch the snuff films, they, are, they make weapons for NATO and eyeglasses for children in third world countries or something like that. So that was a very like throwaway pointed critique of a sort of like corporate responsibility many decades before that became more of a... Yeah, or just sort of the blindness of these huge webs. It's like, yeah, they make cookies and bombs <laughs> yeah. and it's all the same. Right. It's absolutely all the same. Uh, in some ways, though, things are sort of more precious though, right? Like, I think in a way that Cronenberg couldn't imagine in 82, the access which, which we all have to be able to watch snuff films, essentially, is endless. And the fact that they're real is, I think, something he wouldn't think of. Like, you know, uh, you know, right now, as we're watching the war between Russia and Ukraine come on, I, I as someone who studies information, disinformation, I'm sure as many people who, who will watch this, like subscribe to all kinds of different Telegram channels and things, and just the stuff coming through is, you know, extremely graphic, extremely horrific, and just sometimes is exactly the same coming from both sides with different labels on it. And so I do think this kind of dystopian information future, like, you know, we're there yeah. and we don't even have as many of these guides because even in this show, right, whether it's the corporate executive or the daughter and her prophet father, there are still adults in the room, right? Of course, it's a shorthand for telling a story. You need people to stand in for people, right? But it's still, it's still hard, I think, to, uh, uh, you know, Jacques Tati maybe does it, you know, in his films, other folks to try to make these kind of big things, but to show what a system of people who are vaguely greedy, vaguely lazy, but not the worst people you've ever met, the damage they can all do when they are numbered in the millions and they control the apparatus of the world. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in a way, like we've seen a lot of these world-changing technologies as um, revolutionizing how we communicate, but in some ways they they just sort of, um, what's the word, accelerate things, seeds that were already there. So I think that, like, we talk... Yeah, it's the same right, stuff. Like, we talk a lot right? about, like, oh, the new age of information warfare, but, like, information warfare, of course, has always been a thing, going back to... You know, when it took you two weeks to get a newspaper and whatever, like Jefferson said that 
uh, Adams was dead or what? I, you, you know what I'm talking about? Like there was some campaign yeah, yeah, with the yeah, two yeah. of them. Uh, no, Adams lives is like his last words. Even no, though Adams was this dead, is something different. This something was like during that, right? a presidential campaign. They were um, really mad at each other. They had a friendship and then they hated each other and then they reconciled. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They died on the same day. And yeah, July fourth. Um, on July fourth, the fiftieth. Annoying. I think yeah, anniversary, twenty fifth anniversary or fiftieth. I don't know. Kind of lame when you think about um, it. Really. But when they were running against each other, it was like one of them said the other had syphilis, and then the other one, and it just really inspired. I mean, we. Oh, it's just like actually. Yeah, we dead. need to. We actually need to try this one in the mass emails again. Let's see if we can come full circle. He was just like, you know what? You can't vote for him. He died. He's actually dead, and it was. Much harder, I actually think, for people to verify whether or not that was true. They had to wait. It took a little while. For, to you know, then, yeah. I don't know, like uh, the next, like I don't know, wagon to come into town. I don't know how it worked, but you definitely couldn't uh, go on Twitter and see every person on Earth having their own opinion on whether or not he was dead, and you couldn't check TMZ. So I don't really buy that misinformation is somehow uh, so much no, worse now. And, and the internet, and you know, I even think sort of the like. I do think, look, I am. I, I try to be an unorthodox thinker, you know, not to apply the same lens to everything over and over again. I do think like mechanical, like the re, like mass media, the difference between having a bespoke media and having mass media was a big change. I don't think the difference between having a mass media and a digital media is as big a change. I think that one was a huge sea change and that one, the idea that I actually can hit everybody, didn't used to be able to do yeah. that. And then... Now the idea I can hit everybody faster no, but is sort I think of the same I think there's better. a bigger, so a, the underlying thing I think that is so... Like movies, photography, like 1900, uh, turn, of the, turn of the 20th century, I still feel like something fundamentally No, changed. I think something fundamentally changed, and I think it's, maybe I'm arguing with myself now, but I think it's just the fact that these narratives that aren't coming from any powerful actor. So a lot of times I use like Standing Rock as, as an example, but there's a, tons of examples like this, like whether it's different, um, you know, protests in Ferguson, whatever, like any something that is being elevated by no powerful actor. It's not the U.S. government. It's not any other government. Um, there are people who just haven't had their voices in the popular press ever. And those people specifically are the ones that cable news is actually worried about. They're not worried about any other kind of uh, social information sharing. What they're worried about is anything that sort of undermines their own power, their own ability to be the sole arbiters of what people should have access to, what information they should have access to. And actually, this week, they just announced... We're going to have a motherfucking ministry of truth. Biden's a, a pro, he's appointing some minister of truth. I mean, like the, the name of it is like office to combat misinformation or something. But this is the bullshit that the liberals, sorry, but you motherfuckers have lost the plot. Uh, they've just been banging down the doors asking for this uh, because of the absolute hysteria yeah, that was going on in the bad. press instead of talking about. Um, what's happening in the changing media landscape. Their jobs are under threat, their power is under threat, and they have nothing to say about Fox News, which just blares misinformation all day and all night. Nothing to say. They're in the club, so it's different. Yeah, they're yeah, yeah. in the club. They have the same MSNBC. business model. Maddow, right? Same Come business on. model. So they have nothing to say about any of that. All they want is just this extreme censorship of people being able to communicate directly with each other without any sort of person from the upper classes being able to be in the conversation. That is extremely disturbing to them. Um, and I don't think they're actually going to be able to do that. Short of like banning every social media platform, it's actually very difficult to moderate content because 
um, you know, you try to cast a wide net, you end up uh, eliminating way too much. It becomes totally unusable. You try to cast a narrow net and a lot of hate speech. It, it, it's not... It's a Goldilocks problem. Essentially, when people talk about trying to regulate speech on these platforms, they're imagining an individual who has a perfect, perfectly matched politics to their own going through and reading every single tweet. And of course, we know that's not possible. On the other hand, the fact that they can't do that, they don't have the power to do that, they don't have the uh, ability to actually um, engage with the amount of content and information and data that we produce, I think it's a big advantage for us because there's no way for mm -hmm. them to tamp down on all these different conversations, all these different movements, uh, because it's just, it pops up, you know, it's not, it's, there's no way to control it without outright banning it, which is exactly. No, I think people even know that like, they collect massive amounts of information, but they don't even, there's nothing much they can do. Oh yeah, do no, big data is in a large part, like NSA, it's in like large part a lie. Big data is too big for people to understand what it even means. But if you look at what Russia did, like Russia just banned Facebook, Instagram, all these social media platforms because it is full of so-called Western propaganda. So how is that any motherfucking different than what we're doing? Like all of a sudden, all these liberals are like, oh my God, this is so anti-democratic. They have banned Facebook, the thing that I have been advocating for banning for six months. Like don't advocate to ban platforms where people can share information socially that has never previously had a way to reach the public. Like, just don't do it. Just stop, please. Read a book. Uh, you know, yeah, totally. <laughs> that, that actually would be, that actually wouldn't be a bad thing to exactly cut on. Read a book, cut at the end of our lowbrow, a highbrow segment. But actually, I do want to tell a story that I tell all the time because an old man repeats himself, but because I think it illustrates your point exactly, which is when it comes to these actual news stories like Ferguson that bubble up from below, the news media do not know what to do with them to the point where my favorite Jake Tapper CNN moment, which is in front of a burning gas station in mm. Ferguson, he asks the person there, hey, do you think that this is a big enough news story that the news should be here? Or that we the media should be here? And the guy looks at him and goes, I don't know, bitch, read the news. <laughs> you know, and then like walks away to continue <laughs> protesting. And that's it. Yeah. That's the it. the relevance of traditional media has been declining for a long time, and they've been playing the victim about it for a long time. I mean, for a couple of decades now, it's, oh, my God, people are too stupid to read our wonderful product. Maybe if your product isn't being consumed by people, it's because it's literally shit and they don't want to eat shit anymore. <laughs> And maybe if we didn't realize that your sort of path to power goes from politics to the morning shows, like we all see that's what they do, that it's well, like maybe I mean. that we don't I mean, take them so seriously. I think it's like we all see what happens and why should we continue to take them seriously? Raised in the internet age, it. raised in the information age, this stuff just doesn't work on them anymore. Whereas like boomers are still watching these shows. They're the only things keeping these shows afloat. And unfortunately, they really, really, really love to vote. Um, but you know, and they don't love to die. They hate dying, honestly. Like it's their least favorite. It's, like, no, it's, it's really favorite. a thing with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I I feel like they know that they're the average age of their viewers is like seventy. I mean, it's something crazy. So even if they all live to be ninety, uh, you know, what is the business model for twenty years from now? I I don't see what it is. They just tried to release CNN Plus. Uh, which apparently they spent millions and millions of dollars on. 
it was supposed to be their streaming streaming news. Nobody signed up for I feel it. Bad. They were People trying to lost their job. I guess no, 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 I no, no. Don't do that motherfucking shit. Don't do they, that motherfucking shit. They already shit. had stream. No, no, they already had streaming news. Like, what was the point of this thing? Don't it didn't make do any the sense. I feel like, bad for thing? the people who lost their jobs thing because no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying like I'm sure whatever it was fine. People who worked there were fine. I have no idea. I'm just saying what was the point of it when there you can go to no CNN.com/slash/live and watch no CNN. But what I was gonna say is that the very powerful millionaire. Uh, media figures who were publicly humiliated by the collapse of this dumbass platform immediately got online and was like, I guess... Who were those people? I don't know. Whoever... You think I know the people on CNN? Yes, they they were were famous famous people people who were going to have shows on CNN+. And they immediately got online and they were like, I guess you just want to make fun of the poor people and the makeup artists who lost their job. I mean, this is a very... This is disinformation. This is very clear, like, distracting from the actual narrative of what happened. Y'all are the ones... I just don't want to be ghoulish about something closing. But, like, you know... like Y'all are the idea. ones that seem like a house opened that was, a business yeah. that was unsustainable. So you guys are responsible for that. And by the way, since you're all millionaires, why don't you give them a motherfucking severance check? Why don't you do that? Because you have money and I don't, ma'am. Like, I don't understand why they're trying to blame the public for that. That's your own shit. You did that. <laughs> you built you that. Built that. Um, so apocalypse. Is apocalypse the next oh, theme? Oh, uh, sure, I guess. Yeah. Is there a highbrow apocalypse? All right, there's plenty of highbrow apocalypse. Come on. There's even apocalypse now. That's not really apocalypse. That's not what we'll watch. It's not an apocalypse, and it wasn't really now. So, what are we going to watch? Aside from Independence Day, which I think you'll like a lot. I I, I don't know. I mean, it's... We we, we don't have to do it on the show. We didn't come up with it on the show last time. Oh, all right. Just the the theme... So the theme, uh, sci-fi, theme apocalypse, what, 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 do you, what do you like? Uh, yeah, it could be sci-fi, it could be apocalypse, it could be um, alien. Pick one, pick one, three. Why two, do I have to pick the topic one. on the show, but we don't have to pick the movie on the show? Because we did it last time. Fine, and, you know, once apocalypse, you set a yes, some sort of apocalypse. Okay, 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 see? It could, it could be aliens, but it could be something else. Speaking of which, I just want to plug um, my next project really quickly. Um, Roland Emmerich, the guy that made Independence Day and has made just a series of really shitty disaster movies ever since, he has made a new movie called Moonfall, which is, as you might have guessed, about the moon falling into the earth and maybe killing everybody. Looks really bad. Halle Berry's Berry's in it. I forget who else. Some other famous people are in it. I will be watching it. That's why it's my next project. It will be watching the film, and I invite you all to join me when it's no longer twenty dollars to buy it on streaming. Moonfall. Wow, this sounds like quite a motion picture, and I sure you will hear all about it, folks, <laughs> on another highbrow, lowbrow here on the committee program. La imagen por la cual vale la pena arriesgar la vida, sacrificarse hasta la muerte. Thanks so much for tuning into the committee program. We know you have many options when it comes to content consumption, and we appreciate your attention to this new season with new episodes on Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and at 10 p.m. Central European Time.
You can support the show by becoming a member on patreon.com slash the committee program. You can follow committee on Twitter, uh, backslash committee pro on YouTube, the committee program on Instagram, the committee program on Facebook, the committee program, and you can visit the committee program company store at tpublic.com, the committee program shop. Special thanks, as always, to our team, Javad Castrati, Fiamma Melli, Jacopo Castelletti, Forrest Levette, and committee's deputy director, Julia Doubleday. Look alive out there. It's later than you think. It's the end of our broadcast day. Thanks for listening. program in our second series. For more global infotainment from the committee program, click on the video screen right or screen left. Please like and subscribe to the committee program on Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern and 10 p.m. Central European time.